This is the Italian American podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping Italian Americans learn about their heritage. We do that by speaking to Italian Americans in all different age ranges, professions, and locations. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and I'm flying solo today. My co-host, Dolores Alfieri, is about a week away from her wedding. So she's running around like any bride would a week before her wedding, and we're excited for her and really excited for the wedding. In this episode, I actually talked to someone who's not Italian-American. He's Greek, John Vorlis, about a documentary that he produced called Breaking Balls, which is a 75-minute feature-length documentary film that follows three colorful figures involved in the game of bocce as viewed through the lens of the 30th anniversary Cleveland Challenge Cup of Bocce Tournament. The Challenge Cup is one of the largest bocce events in North America and is held every year at the Wycliffe Italian American Club in Wycliffe, Ohio, the last weekend of August. And you'll hear in this interview with John, which was really a fun interview to do because this is a non-Italian American who basically grew up around Italian Americans and now worked on this really amazing documentary focused around a really important Italian American tradition. And it's not just the bocce which we get into, it's the idea of coming together. Uh, so it was really, I got goosebumps several times doing this interview with John. And I really recommend that you watch the 75-minute documentary. And we'll tell you where you can find it when we get into the interview here. Then in the story segment, at the end of the episode, I chat with Diana Pishner Walker, author of several award-winning children's books, including Hopping to America, A Rabbit's Tale of Immigration. And I think that that's a tale that you know many of us are familiar with from our families. She has a very inspirational story to share with us. So before I introduce our first guest, I'd like to recognize our sponsor for this episode, Mediaset Italia, which is now on direct TV from AT&T. When your heart is in Italy, but you're here, bring a piece of Italy home, introducing Mediaset Italia from direct TV. It's perfect for anyone who loves all things Italia. Enjoy all your favorite Italian programs from channels Canale 5, Italia 1, and Rete 4 on Mediaset Italia. And best of all, you get your favorite entertainment, including shows like Caduta Libera, Mattino Cinque, and Squadra Antimafia. Feel like you're home again with Mediaset Italia on DirecTV from AT&T. Introducing Mediaset Italia from DirecTV. Get Mediaset Italia for $10 per month plus taxes. Call 877-778-4794 to get Mediaset Italia from DirecTV. That's 877-778-4794. 4794. Mediaset Italia requires activation of a qualifying base package. Hardware available separately at additional cost. Programming subject to change at any time. Other fees, restrictions, and conditions apply. So call for details. And I always say that watching TV in Italian or listening to Italian in any way that you can can be really helpful when you're trying to learn Italian. In fact, what I like to do is watch TV in Italian and then put the subtitles in Italian as well. So, so you really see what the words are as they are speaking them. So it's definitely something that's been helpful. All right. Now I'd like to introduce our first guest for today's episode. John Vorlis has 25 plus years experience working in the entertainment industry. He is currently an adjunct instructor in film and digital media at Cleveland State University. Most recently, he was a VP and general manager at the Academy Award winning and Emmy Award winning motion picture specialty Hollywood lighting company, Luminous System. Corp. At Luminous, John oversaw budgeting, finances, hiring, HR, and foreign sales and rentals. Prior to that, he was a story analyst at Nippon Harold Films, a Japanese film distribution company, where he analyzed scripts for films being considered for financing and distribution. While there, he worked closely with the VP of the U.S. Division 
of the company. And of course, John's most recent project, Breaking Balls, is one that we're going to really talk about in this interview to talk about some of the Italian-American traditions and how they're used to bring people together. All right, to bring us into the interview with John, let me give you a quote. Quotes from Rich Somer. Gaming has been a great way to get to know people. That's part of what I love about games. They are social. All right, now I'd like to welcome John Borlas onto the Italian American podcast. John's the producer of the new documentary out, Breaking Balls, which we're going to get into. It's all about a game that we love, bocce, but it's about something even deeper than that. John, welcome to the Italian American podcast. Great to be here, Anthony. Thank you for inviting me. So, Usually on the Italian-American podcast, we interview Italian-Americans, but in this case, John is an Italian-American. He's actually Greek, but he grew up in a very Italian-American neighborhood. John, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about kind of your upbringing? Yeah, I am Greek. I'm 100% Greek. My dad, who came over from the old country, always had a saying uh, whenever I would mention my Italian friends or neighbors, he would say, una fazza, una razza, <laughs> which is, we look the same, we are the same. We were very similar in a lot of ways to our Italian-American neighbors, uh, and we were surrounded on all sides. We had Lorenzo's, Brocchetti's, Serino's on all, <laughs> every direction you went. Now, this was in Cleveland, right, John? Yeah, in a sub east side suburb called Wycliffe, which was a place where a lot of Amer- Italian Americans, especially from the Campo Basso region, settled in the early 1900s in the like around 1920 or so, right after the war, First World War. They came out here. There was a lot of work in gardening and construction because uh Wycliffe had some uh, very wealthy uh folks at the time. Harry Colby, who was a friend of Rockefeller's, had a big mansion up on the the hill, which is now City Hall. So there was a large uh, Italian-American community that migrated here and uh, went to work and settled down. And and we uh, plopped ourselves in the middle of that when my mom and dad uh, moved uh, here. Well, my mom actually bought the house. She had grown up in the heart of Cleveland and like many immigrants, families moved towards the suburbs as they got more successful. So we were always surrounded by Italian culture, whether it was Mount Carmel Church or Backyard Bocce or <laughs> you name it, you know, it was always around. We always felt comfortable in that environment. And the Italian Americans who were our neighbors were, you know, very welcoming, very friendly, very uh, outgoing, always looking out for community and neighbors and uh and we just grew to love the place and still do. Sure. Now we're gonna get into the documentary, but before we get into the documentary, I know you went away from there and you moved away and we'll talk about that. But before you moved away, John, were you were aware of the tournament, the bocce tournament or not yet? Well, I was aware of the Italian American club and I was aware of bocce, but the tournament really didn't take off until after I left. I left in January of 90. I went out to uh, Los Angeles to go to film school at USC. 
And I spent the next 20 years pretty much out there working in the film business. And I would come home maybe three, four times a year. But I had never been exposed to bocce the way it's played at the Italian-American club and at a lot of places around. For me, bocce was just a backyard game like darts or cornhole or horseshoes you know it was something people did for fun when they were having a barbecue and the family was over and or the neighbors were over and i never realized it was such a cultural touchstone for the community it just for me it was just you know another game and when i came home and uh, moved back in 2010 a buddy of mine that summer called me up and said, hey, let's go look, watch some bocce. There's a tournament at the Italian-American Club. And I thought, what the heck, you know, it was a nice summer night and beat sitting at home watching TV for sure. So I went and holy smokes, I was blown away. I mean, well, there was a traffic jam on the <laughs> main boulevard, which never happens. There was thousands of people pouring in and out. There was food, there was music, there was drink, there was everything you can imagine. It was like a carnival. And in the middle of it, were these spectacular covered bocce courts where there was nine bocce games going on at the same time. And it was obvious to me from the first minute I started watching it that these guys were serious, hardcore players, and they were playing to win. <laughs> they weren't playing backyard bocce for fun. They were competitive, and I was fascinated by this whole entire thing. I had never seen anything like it. And I turned to my friend and I said, somebody should make a movie about this. And he just laughed. And like a year later, I was looking for a project and I thought, damn, this could be something. And so I started digging into it. And by 2013, we were filming. So before we get into that, just so that everyone, all the listeners know, John, give them a little bit more of an overview on the tournament. So this is an annual tournament that runs for what, a couple of days? Or give them a breakdown. Yeah, the last weekend of August, every year for the last, I guess they're going to, this year will be the 35th year, the Wycliffe Italian American Club hosts the Cleveland Challenge Cup of Bocce. And it's a tournament that draws clubs uh, and teams from all over the eastern United States, from Canada, as far west even as Colorado, as far south as Florida, up in Boston, there's Boston, Connecticut, New York. Teams from all over come in to play because this is like one of the, the summer tournaments along with the World Series of Bocce in Rome, New York, and a couple other tournaments. It is the place to play Bocce and to experience the highest level of competition outside of like the world championships. There's 96 men's teams. Usually there's a dozen, maybe six, 14, 16 women's teams. And starting Friday night at 5.30 when they kick the tournament off with the national anthems of the United States, Canada, and Italy, they play bocce almost nonstop until the championship game on Sunday around 5, 6 o'clock in the evening. It's double elimination, and the prize money is significant. I think the winning team gets like $6,000. And I would say that it's a lot more than bocce as well, though, right? There's a lot of food going on. Oh, my God, yeah, there's... Every night there's entertainment, someone playing Italian music uh, or a local band that's just playing music. There's a covered pavilion where there's food and drink. And so people, just families come down there and spend the whole evening. And there's music, there's bocce, there's getting together with your friends and seeing people you haven't seen for a year. And It's like a feast. And then there's... 
Yeah, it's like the feast. And then they have like little events for the kids. There's like a kid's day. And in the mornings, they have uh, some of the local Italian chefs cook breakfast. And it's so much fun. And there's little booths where people sell little things, T-shirts and cigars and whatever. But it's it's very much like the feast, but with bocce rolling into it. Right. No, I think that's great. I think like, listen, I think one of the things that Italians and Italian Americans do very well is that they find ways to get together. They find ways to bring the community together. And to me, it sounds like this is one big way to do it with this tournament. I mean, listen, they play, sounds like they play some competitive bocce, but then they've got the music, they've got the food. I'm sure they got some, some homemade wine flowing there. It's a huge community event, yeah. The whole city gets behind it, really. The mayor comes down, and there's all kinds of television and radio hosts come down, and the Italian programs often do their shows, the weekend shows, live from the tournament. So it's a big cultural event, not just for the Italian-American community, but for the whole Wycliffe and uh, and Northeast Ohio, a community of bocce players and Italian-Americans and people that just want to have fun. Like I said, when I first went to it, I had no idea it had become this huge tournament. And uh, it's five blocks from where I grew up, literally. And it was like the best kept secret. Something about it must have made you feel pretty strongly about doing the documentary after just going there for the night or whatever it was. Yeah, it was that feeling of surprise and on one level, that emotional feeling of like, wow, this was in my backyard the whole time and I had no idea. But it was also like this visual spectacle. If you're going to make a movie, it has to somehow translate to pictures, to images. You can't just be talking about it and talking about it and talking about it. People have to see it to experience it. And everything was, I mean, it was the light. I mean, we went down at night, so it was like beautifully lit, like an Italian backyard restaurant, you know, with the hanging lights and tables and and the music. And it was just such a spectacle that as a filmmaker, I could see the visual potential there. What I wasn't sure yet quite about was what's the story here. And initially it was just story about a a club putting on a show, you know, like Mickey Rooney and let's put on a show. (laughs) But it turned out to be so much more than that. As we got into it, we realized that this was way more than just a, a bocce event. It was a cultural, traditional, it was a family community event that had had a lot of deeper meaning to it, you know, much more profound than simply an athletic competition, you know. And that really struck me, I think, as we were working on it. I started to see how this was really a way to keep the generations connected and the traditions passed down from generation to generation because you would see people in their 80s and 90s there and then people my age in their 40s and 50s and then kids teenagers in their 20s. And it was like this whole cross-section of generations. And that sort of became the heart of the story. It really became, as we dug into it more, it really became that. And and the bocce was the uh, glue that held everything together. That's a good way to put it. So, John, take us through this now. You went, you came back home. You went to the event. You had this idea like, man, we should make, someone should make a movie out of this. How did it go next? I'm assuming you had to pitch it to them, right? 
Yeah, I had pitched projects in Hollywood for years. It's a very stressful process going in there. People are going to say yes or no, or and you're going to do something or not. And so I was expecting this to be a kind of a stressful thing. How am I going to convince these guys to let me film what they're doing? So I reached out to a couple of buddies of mine that I had gone to high school with who I knew were involved with the club, and they invited me to come down to one of their monthly meetings. And this was like late spring before the summer season had started. And so I came down there. I had this whole like pitch in my head I was going to really sell. So we met. They asked me who I was and where I was from. And I told them I was from Wycliffe and that I had moved to Hollywood to work in the film business. And they <laughs> they started immediately, you know, what are you doing back here? Why'd you come home? <laughs> What's wrong with you? <laughs> they started busting my coulons. And I, and I immediately suddenly just became really comfortable around this. So we just started talking about, you know, where I came from and what I did in Hollywood and why I was interested. And before you know it, they're like, all right, let's do it. And I'm like, oh my God, that was the easiest pitch I ever had. And I just didn't expect it to be so simple. And honestly, the five or six people who were running the club at the time, they were amazing. I don't want to say they rolled out the red carpet because that's not the right metaphor, but they just opened their doors to me and just said, yeah, film everything you want and whatever you need, let us know. We'll help you find it. And, and I mean, they became partners really in the production. And when it came time to raise money, they eventually, because we shot the movie practically with no budget at all. I was using students of mine from Cleveland State because I had started teaching film at Cleveland State University when I came back. And the production was fairly simple. I mean, we did a lot of filming, certainly, and there was a lot of people involved, but it was just from a filming standpoint, it wasn't anything too crazy. The good thing was all these young kids had their own equipment and they all understood digital cinematography better than I did. And they were all like so enthusiastic that it just made it really easy. But then we ended up shooting 200 hours of footage and that was a huge massive amount of information to then cut down to a we were hoping to be a 75 85 minute film it ended up 75 minutes and at that point we were we needed to hire a professional editor and so I started to work on raising money to do that and you know the club jumped right in and helped me out they opened their doors to the club for me to pitch potential investors and club members and they were fantastic in every way so they all got behind it hundred percent. It was amazing to me. I mean, they really were proud of this event and their club, and they really wanted to show the world what they had accomplished here. And the response has been amazing. I mean, when people see the movie, they're like, oh my God, <laughs> this is incredible. It's just people are saying, oh, I should come down to the tournament. I'm like, yeah, you should, because it's yeah, blast. No. I had such a good time, and, and we got to know each other so well and become such good friends that uh, I forget if it was one or two years after we started working, I think it was a year, the year after when we had filmed most of it. They made me an honorary member of the club, the Italian-American club. And it was, to me, that was such a huge honor. I mean, I was really touched. I was very moved by that because it's like saying you're one of the family. <laughs> you're one of us. And I just, it was very appreciated. And I vowed from that point on I was going to do everything I could to make this movie as good as it could be just to honor the people involved and to honor the members of the Wycliffe Italian American Club and and the whole culture. I, I just felt like they had done me such a solid that I really needed to do everything I could to repay that. And, and I hope I did. I think I did. They, they tell me I did. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. 
And uh, yeah, and really the reason that we wanted to have John on the show, one of the main reasons is because, I mean, a lot of the times we talk about this on the show. And in fact, it's one of the reasons we started the show was to try to create ways to record and pass on some of these traditions as the immigrant population generation, I should say, is getting older and opportunities for doing this are less and less. And so that's one of the reasons we wanted to talk to John, because really, as you can tell by him and I, our conversation here is that bocce is just one part of this that kind of creates this avenue for galvanizing the community, bringing them together um, and keeping them together and getting them, allowing them to build relationships, have fun with each other, and then further carry on these traditions. And I think John, by kind of more or less cataloging this and capturing it through this documentary, Breaking Balls, which, by the way, we're going to link to it. There is a trailer that you can watch about the video, which which in itself I think is really inspiring. But that's what this is all about. And that's why we wanted to have John talk about it. So, John, just to give the audience a little bit of an idea, why don't you set the documentary up for them? I know it kind of follows three different people. Maybe you can walk them through that. Yeah, sure. We decided early on that we needed characters to convey the story. And we were lucky that we found three really great characters. One was Gino Latessa, the president of the emeritus of the club and also the tournament director. Gino is a very charismatic guy and great on camera and really kind of anchors the whole movie. And then Brian Polantz, who uh, actually is only half Italian and half Slovenian, but one of the best bocce players in the area, he welcomed us to follow him around through three major tournaments that summer and led us into his home and his family life, which really gave a lot of depth to the film. And then we followed a third character, Dominic Olivo, who was the head groundskeeper at the Italian American Club and the guy responsible for taking care of these absolutely gorgeous outdoor bocce courts. So we decided those were going to be our characters, and we were going to follow their stories all the way up till the culmination of the Cleveland Challenge Cup at the end of August. So we filmed that whole summer. We followed Dominic around. We followed Gino around everywhere he went, radio shows, television, whatever was going on. And we got to know a lot of the other members of the club through the film that you see them in there. But those three guys are kind of our guides through the story, especially Gino, who's just, he's a very warm, very Italian-American, a great representative of the community and the club, and very, and so proud of the members in the club and just a great ambassador for the game and and for the culture. The other thing was that it, it also started to bring in the story of the generations because Dominic was in his 70s, uh, late 70s. Gino was in his late 50s. And Brian was in his early 30s. And so we had this whole three generations of Italian-Americans. You could see how the tradition was being passed from one generation to the next and how each generation was sort of nurturing it and and keeping the flame alive for the next. And that that really became a profound thing. Uh, I don't want to give too much away about the movie, but it became a very profound thing as the generations pass and the new generations take their place. That's a very emotional uh, journey. And it really came across, I think, in the film. Uh, I think it's the heart and soul of the movie. And so we were very lucky. I mean, we were very lucky that we had such interesting characters right here in our backyard that we could use to tell the story. Because that's one of the keys of telling a good documentary is having good character, good, strong characters that people 
can relate to and attach their sympathies and and and, and follow them and want to know what's going to happen and was Brian going to win the tournaments he played in and was this 30th anniversary tournament going to be as good as all the others and was Dominic going to be able to pass on all his knowledge of grooming these bocce courts building them keeping them uh, at the top level of bocce it was all part of that soup that made the movie <laughs> yeah Sure. That's really interesting. So take me now. It was a lot of work working on this film. Four years. A lot of hours, four years, a lot of editing. Thousands of hours. Thousands of hours. (laughs) You had had interns, you told me, helping you out and students and all kinds of stuff. Take me to the point where you show them the video, the club. Yeah, this was a critical moment because you can only work on a project so long before the diminishing return starts to come in. And and they were really nice about it. You know, it, it took four years to finish it. And they never pressured me, but always asked me, how's it going? What's happening? When can we see it? I'm kind of a perfectionist and I don't want to show anybody anything until I feel like it's ready to go. Uh, I would show a a rough cut to just one or two of my closest filmmaking friends to get their take on what was working and what wasn't. And finally, we got to a point in the late 2016 where we thought, I think we finally cracked this thing. I think we have something that is really working as a movie. We finally got to a point where we had an hour of the film and it was still not as finished. We knew we were going to have at least another 15 or 20 minutes of movie and the music wasn't done and the sound was still rough. But there was a Christmas party at the uh, club and and uh, the club president, Rick Continenza, asked me, do you think we could screen the rough cut there? And I said, well, why not? It's time to show it to the public. <laughs> it's time to see if they respond to it the way we want them to respond to it. And so I was pretty confident and I so confident I took my family to the party <laughs> and we screened the film at the Christmas party and it was the over response was overwhelming. It was unbelievable. There was applause and tears and I was feeling, okay, I think we got it here. And I had sent the same rough cut to the Cleveland International Film Festival, which is a huge, enormous film festival, uh, not as well known as Sunday answer Tribeca or South by Southwest or Con, but on the next level, I mean, it runs for 10 days. There's over 100,000 people come to it. It's a prestigious festival to get into, especially for a documentary. We said a Hail Mary, and <laughs> we hoped for the best. We weren't sure if we were going to get in or not, and in early March, we got notified that we were in, and when I told the guys at the club, they were over the moon. They were so happy. I was so happy. And, and we knew, you know, at that point that we had really accomplished something. And we still weren't finished. I mean, it took us another month of work from getting it in to getting it done because there was so much. Post-production is such a, a time-consuming thing. You have to get the picture right. Then you, it's not just the editing. You have to color correct everything so it looks like one complete movie visually. Then you have to add all the subtitles where you need and title cards to tell you who the people are. And then you have to put the music in and you have to make sure the music is working and the mix and all the sound is cleaned up. And it was just a huge amount of effort. I mean, the last, we worked so hard the last two or three months that by the time we got to screen the film the first week of April, we were exhausted. We were just hopeful that audiences would like it, and we were blown away by the response. I mean, the film sold out the first theater that it was going to play in. 
almost a month before, weeks before, and then they told they asked us to have a second screening that same night, and we were, and then that one sold out, and by the time we were done, we had sold out three screens the first night, and then we had a next a showing the next day and sold that one out, and it was mind-boggling. I mean, we just this little movie we couldn't imagine how popular it became, and uh, from that point on, it's just been a icing on the cake <laughs> that's awesome and i mean i think john what you've done here is you've taken something which is probably really hard to try to really capture the meaning of it and the depth of it and you did a great job of it and it's obvious if the people that are involved in it feel that way i mean no one knows it better than them yeah exactly and when i showed it to the club and they responded the way i did i, I was a hundred percent satisfied I, everything else that happened after that to me was just gravy because i wanted to do right by those people i wanted them to to see this thing and be proud of it and then when we started to get recognition out beyond the community outside the community into the world of film festivals and then we we got distribution for the film uh it's out on iTunes and Amazon Prime, and we have a DVD that's out on Amazon, and we've been in theaters. It's just been a wonderful experience to see the film be celebrated by more than just the Italian-Americans. It's been amazing. I couldn't be more happy for not just myself. Obviously, you know, when if you work that hard, it's nice to feel like what you did was appreciated, but for the club to to read, you know, every time something else happens good for the film, they just get all excited again. And it just makes me so happy to be able to share that with them. That's really special. That's great. And again, the film is Breaking Balls. And John, you pretty much just gave the rundown on it, but it, you can pretty much find it everywhere. You can go around right Amazon and, and get it, correct? Yeah, Amazon for the DVD, iTunes and Amazon Prime for the digital. Right, you could stream it through the Prime, right? Exactly, yeah. Okay. All right, well, check it out, everyone. It's It's really is touching. And like I said, I mean, that's what this podcast is about, is capturing traditions and recording them and passing them on. And that's exactly what John has done here. And like we said, Italians and Italian-Americans, if you're a listener, you know that we do things like the Sunday dinners and like the different celebrations to bring the family together. Food is a way to do it. The table is a way to do it. And bocce is another way to do it. And in this case, there's a whole bunch of things going on in that last week in August in Cleveland. And, uh, you know, John really captured it. So, John, the last thing I'll ask you before we wrap up here is you spent a lot of time with Italian-Americans. You grew up in pretty much an Italian-American enclave. You've now shot this movie, so you've been kind of knee-deep in this stuff for years in general, what's your general take on the Italian-American community and how what you've been associated with? Well, the thing that impresses me so much is that they really believe in the word community. I mean, for them, it's not just a slogan. It's a way of life. And it's such a special thing to be a part of. Wycliffe is a very small suburb. It's nondescript in many ways. You won't find it on the map unless you look hard. And I've traveled all over the world. And the one place that I find myself happiest is here because I'm surrounded by a community that loves and cares and respects each other and understands we all come from different places. We all are immigrants in one way or another. We are all in this together, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health. It's a community, and to open your doors to your neighbor and take out a bottle of homemade wine and some 
homemade sausage and have a little barbecue and play bocce in the backyard just brings people closer together. And that's what Italian Americans are all about, in my estimation. And from having lived in this community for so long and having filmed and made this movie, it's a community and in the best sense of the word. It's a place just to enjoy life and be around people that are willing to help when you need help and who you want to help when they need help. It's just, uh, I can't say enough about it. It's the thing that makes America the greatest country in the world. And uh, for me, that's really special. Well, that's great. Well, again, John Vorlis, producer of Breaking Balls. John, thank you so much for spending some time here with us on the Italian American Podcast. It was my pleasure, Anthony. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Now it's time for the Italian American Stories segment of the episode. And this is the part of the show we try to bring you back to your family gatherings or conversations. We try to play a recording from one of our listeners or even a recording from one of our own family members. It's really, you know, try to get people to talk about their past and their family. In today's segment, I talk with Diana Pishner Walker, who is a children's author, but she has a really, really interesting story behind her writing. Diana wrote her first children's book released in August 2015 entitled Spaghetti and Meatballs Growing Up Italian. It's a children's book, of course, about her childhood. The book is illustrated by Ashley Teets and published by Headline Books. This book has received the Reader's Choice Award Honorable Mention for Best Children's Nonfiction, as well as the Hollywood Book Festival Award Honorable Mention, Mom's Choice Award, London Book Festival Award, Southern California Book Festival Award, and most recently, a 2016 Preferred Choice Award by the Creative Child Magazine, as well as an Indie Award. It has been the juried and accepted at Tamarick in Beckley, West Virginia, and the Italian American Press. And we'll get into some of her other books in the interview. But really what I loved about talking with Diana is it's obvious how her relationship with her parents and her family and her experience of growing up Italian has inspired her to write and is now inspiring many more people and children, no less, through her books. All right, now I'd like to welcome Diana Pishner-Walker onto the Italian-American podcast. Diana, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So Diana's an author, and we happened to meet, I think, a few years ago now at the National Italian-American Foundation Gala. I think we sat next to each other at the dinner and um, kept in touch back and forth, and she followed up with me, and I'm glad she did because now we're able to have her on the podcast or talking a little bit about her journey and Diana, why don't you start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and, and I guess starting by, you know, what it was like growing up Italian for you, your experience. I grew up um, Italian. There was Italian everywhere. All four sets of my grandparents came from Italy, from San Giovanni. And my mother's side had nine brothers and sisters. My dad's side had four brothers and sisters. And we had those big family dinners on Sundays like everybody else did. And um, I'm Catholic as well. So that kind of threw in the mix with the Feast of the Seven Fishes and et cetera. So you grew up in a very Italian neighborhood? Yes. My grandmother was to the right and my godparents were to the left and my grandfather down the street and another grandmother across the street. So yes. <laughs> Sounds about right. All right. So take us into your writing. You know, what, what brought you to writing? And I know you, we're going to talk about a couple of your books specifically, but before we get into the actual books, tell us about your, your career to get to writing. Um, I had no idea that I could write a book. 
my parents were very ill and uh, I began to keep a journal daily to keep my sanity. It was good therapy for me. My mom had um, breast cancer and died of a heart attack. My dad had a heart attack and died of a stroke. And it was all within seven months of each other. So I wrote about what my family, my big Italian Catholic family went through during that time. And you can imagine. And again, I was going to try to keep it for my children and, sh and showed it to a few people that I worked with. And they suggested that I publish it in order to help others who were going through the same similar experiences. It, it's it's a it's a story in itself. I did ha end up self-publishing the book, but um, at another author's suggestion, I started looking for a publisher. And the publisher that I was had my mindset that I wanted. We kept missing each other, and through different occasions, we would we just couldn't coincide for her to see the book to talk about the book. So being the hard-headed Italian that I am, I self-published the book. And it's within a few months, 300 copies of this little book have been sold. And it's called I Don't Want to Sit in the Front Row Anymore. And um, after this experience, I, I was hearing that, you know, it was helping people. I was getting a lot of feedback from this book. So I thought that was my journey's end, and that's what I was supposed to do. Well, out of the blue, someone contacted me and... Um, she suggested I write a book about growing up Italian. And I worked in the school system, but had no idea how to bring my writing down to a level that for children. So she suggested I just, you know, tell your story, tell your story about growing up Italian. And I did. And I set out to find a an illustrator. And long story short, the illustrator and I got along very well. I took her family pictures to draw from, which she did. And in the front and the back of the book, are those family pictures. The, the part of the story that kind of floors people is that she asked me if she could show this work, mine and her work, the uh, pictures in the story to her mom. So I thought, oh, that's really nice. She wants to show her mom what we've done. Uh, as it turns out, her mother, unbeknownst to me, was the publisher I was looking for the year before. So <laughs> I kind of fell into her lap again, and she asked if she could publish the book and that's how that one got started. We added some family recipes in there, I did, that were not easy to get from my family members, but they parted with a few. So there's recipes in there as well. And which book was this now? In the Spaghetti and Meatballs. Spaghetti and Meatballs. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. So t to go back to the journal for a second. Was that something that you started when your parents were sick or when did you start yeah. the journal? Okay. Uh, well, they were sick, and after my my mom had passed, I really wrote a little more in the journal and kept it going um, till after they had passed and some events and some things that happened um, after both of their deaths as well. All right, and then so you wrote the book Growing Up Italian and sounded like you know it it worked out well because you ended up finding that publisher and it kind of worked out. And then after that, you wrote another book. I did when this. Spaghetti Meatballs got started. It ended up winning seven to eight national and international awards. And I will tell you that when I, I didn't even know that authors got these kind of awards, uh, I was at the beach with my family. And when my publisher called about the first award and it was for reader's favorite, and they asked me to come, or I'm sorry, the Hollywood, Hollywood festival book. And they asked me to come to Hollywood to accept this award. And my first thoughts were, you mean these people want me to come to Hollywood, California to talk about my nani and my papu? Well, we didn't get to go, but um, the second book came along because I was cleaning out still some of my mom and dad's things. And I found a Christmas card list 
And in this Christmas card list at the bottom, there were a few scribbles about a little rabbit named Joby. My mother wanted to be a children's book author and never pursued it. So I took that as my second sign that I should do something with this little rabbit and his family. Hmm. And that was your next book. That was Hopping to America, A Rabbit's Tale of Immigration. And um, this little book is now being sold at Ellis Island. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah, that, that tickled me. And, and at the Statue of Liberty, I believe she's taking them over there as well. It's amazing. It seems like your writing career kept progressing from, you know, one book to the next with these different stories and the people you met. And I mean, listen, congratulations on the awards. That's, that's amazing. I mean, especially when you write about something that's so personal for people to get something out of it. And obviously it was very meaningful for it to, to be able to win those types of awards. And like you said, you got some really good feedback on it. So I think that's great because I do think that, you know, the fact that you published the first book, you know, self-published it to get it out there, I think is great because I think a lot of authors don't do that for whatever reason. And it could end up stalling your entire career, where at least if you get something out there and you learn the process and you keep the momentum moving, then these other types of things can happen. Like what happened to you, uh, where you, where you ended up, you know, meeting up and, and hooking up with that publisher, which, which is great. So it's great that you were able to get these books out there and they're doing well. So what are you doing now? Do you still go around with the books? Are you still hearing from people? Are you working on other projects? Well, uh, there, this has become a series. Uh, the Hopping to America has become a series. Um, the second one just came out in August, and it's Hopping to America, A Rabbit's Tale of La Bafana. And it was a Christmas book. And I am going into schools. Um, I worked for the Board of Education for a million years and ended up leaving that career to pursue a career as an author. And I'm going back into schools, still getting my fix to being with the students and talking about immigration and we have a lot of talks about family and their customs and traditions, and they end up going home and asking mom, dad, grandma, and grandpa where they came from. And I'm probably driving parents crazy, but I think it's important for them to know that. No, I, I think that that's wonderful. It's definitely something that I'm also very interested in. I, I, I chair the uh, International Day at my kid's school, um, mm -hmm. and we did the same thing last year. We sent them home with a questionnaire to find everything out about their family. And really, right. the whole idea was to get them to talk to their parents about it and ask questions. But I think it's great that your books are making you know, making people think, you know, they don't just read the book. They then take some action and learn about themselves and learn about their culture. And listen, immigration, whether it's Italian or any other culture, right. you know, it's in, I think projects like this are great because they can have a really big effect, you know, a meaningful effect on a lot of people. So uh, it's great to see that, you know, your books are doing this. They're doing well. They're impacting people. They're reaching out to people. And it's great to see you out there with them. Is this something you're going to continue to do with the series? Yes, there's um, another one that I just submitted, the, the third one in the series, and I will go ahead and give you a spoiler alert that is about a wedding. Also, I I'd like to mention that the first two Hopping to America books have both become plays. Um, our local vintage theater company in Clarksburg, West Virginia, has put them on as a play, and they're performed at the theater with children from third to eighth grade. And they've learned a lot as well. And then they are performed at our West Virginia Italian Heritage Festival in Clarksburg, West Virginia, the last two years. That's amazing. It's just, it's great to hear. So let me ask you this. After everything you went through with your parents and, you know, obviously your grandparents immigrated here, you know, how does it make you feel to see the actual books and to see how well they're doing and to see people grab onto them? I guess proud is the word, not of myself, but of uh, my family and definitely of my heritage. Yeah, that's great. Well, 
Diana, thank you for spending a few minutes with us. Why don't you let our listeners know, you know, where they can find your information, your books? Okay. The books are at headlinebooks.com. That's my publishing company. They're also at amazon.com um, and um, locally here that the, there are several places, but those two are on a national level. That's great. And again, we thank you for spending time with us here. And we also just, I mean, personally, I can say, I think what you're doing is wonderful. I think the fact that it's a project that is, you know, listen, it's meaningful beyond someone just, not that just reading a book isn't something, but reading the book and then taking action, in my opinion, is always what's great when you can connect with people where they go beyond the book or like, you know, they listen to our podcast and then they go out and act on it. And it sounds like that's the reaction you're getting. So Diana, thank you so much for spending some time with us. And um, we're definitely going to share your books around. I hope that if you're listening, you'll share the books with your children and your family because they're really great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed the episode today with John and Diane. I hope you'll consider watching Breaking Balls, the documentary, and also, of course, picking up some of Diana's books for your children, grandchildren, nieces, and nephews. I mean, again, another episode that is just, in my opinion, captures some of the great things that are being done out there to continue to carry on our traditions. And that's really ultimately why we started this podcast and why Dolores and I love highlighting people and projects just like these. All right. So remember to connect with us on social media. We're at Instagram at Italian American. We're on Twitter at ITAL American. That's I-T-A-L American. And on Facebook at the Italian American Podcast. Ci vediamo.